You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come down like fire. Jesus, you must increase and we must decrease. Amen. So today I want to talk about despair. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but I'm serious. I've been thinking a lot about despair lately. I was sitting down with a dear friend who is strong enough in the Lord and mature enough in who he was to open up about his struggles recently. And the word that emerged that kind of characterized his struggles, the monster that visits him far too frequently, is despair. Despair, I believe, is kind of spectral, meaning many of us experience it like degrees on a spectrum. Some despair is real and dark and deep and grave, and other despair is equally real, but a bit more superficial or circumstantial or fleeting. Despair is basically what happens when you're headed in a direction, headed toward an end, and that final destination offers no hope. Despair is what happens when hope vanishes, like having hiked for a long time only to find your feet not resting on the top of a summit, but jammed up with your toes dangling over the edge of a cliff with no bottom in sight, no hope. It's what a person feels who's been hacking through the vines of mental illness for years, and they realize after years and years of therapy and medicine and treatment that the jungle isn't getting any thinner. It's what a young adult feels when they thought that their career preparation had them headed in a certain direction, but they're showing no signs of making it in the field. All that education and all that study and all those dreams. It's what a parent feels when they see the kid that they struggled with all those growing up years actually not make a turn in their adulthood. It's what a single person feels who has had no prospects for years. It's what a teenager feels when they spy all their classmates who look like they're having so much fun on social media and enjoying a, a better life than they have. It's what a person of any age feels when they start to wonder, really wonder whether God exists or whether he's just the projection of uneasy consciences. Despair. No hope for the destination. I felt one of those mini and light-on-the-spectrum versions this past week. It was real. And it really discouraged me. I woke up at 2 a.m. on Wednesday night thinking about it, and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I was upset that I was upset about it. Have you ever had one of those times where you're like, I shouldn't be bothered by this, but I am. You know, it's the end of a year, and uh, a lot of my artist friends, some really wonderful songwriters, are posting their industry-generated stat summaries of how many streams their music has been getting on Spotify over 2020. And as I looked at their numbers and, fatal mistake, compared them with my own, I got really bummed. I've been writing and recording songs for over a decade, a decade, and I've been grinding at this art, pouring my soul into it, and this is all it amounted to, is how I felt. Totally superficial, right? But it really got to me. No hope for the destination. I do think that despair is on the uptick right now. I mean, we just had Thanksgiving during a pandemic, right? There's nothing that says no hope, like still being in mass, 
or like your elderly family members being sequestered to alternate rooms or totally across town, still cut off from each other. And it's been nearly a year. And then it's nothing like uh, no, that says no hope, like being with family members who haven't changed. And it's nearly been a lifetime. And then at 2 a.m. it dawned on me, and this happens from time to time. The very passage that the lectionary had providentially assigned me to preach in 2 Peter. It's all about despair. The community of people that the Apostle Peter is addressing. They're struggling. They're struggling because Jesus, who ascended some decades prior, said he would return. And that he would return soon. And he hasn't. And probably, if we're honest, it's not our struggle. Maybe it should be if we're serious Christians, but come on guys. It's not. I didn't wake up at 2 a.m. on Wednesday stressed out about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the common baseline, the thing underneath these Christians' concern about Jesus' delayed return, is the same deep-down gut kind of despair that characterizes all sorts of our struggles. No hope for the destination. If you have your Bibles, you could look a few verses earlier before our text in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, and you can read the despair between the lines. Peter rehearses the voices that are uh, listening, that his listeners are hearing, the accusation of unbelievers and non-Christians who are mocking the Christians' kind of stupid hope that Jesus will return. And their scoffing goes like this. This is what they say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and here is the zinger, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Boom. There it is. There's the dig. You take the lid off the concerns about Jesus' delayed return, and you found despair deep down. No hope. No destination different from the one apparent right now. All things are continuing as they were, showing no sign of change. And Peter knows this. And so he opens his mouth and preaches forth words of life in our passage. He says in verse 8, but. And isn't that the case? That but is a great first word against despair? Because but signals, you've been thinking it's all headed in one hopeless direction. But. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Oh, and again, you actually have to stop because Peter uses a choice word for God's people to remember who they are. Beloved. Perhaps the most difficult or chilling part of despair as we're headed toward that hopeless destination is not simply that it feels inevitable. It's that as we're headed there, no one sees. No one cares. No one loves. And Peter puts a stop to that lie from the devil, because that's what it is. It's a lie from the devil. God sees you. God cares for you. And God loves you. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. It's why, by the way, our morning prayer liturgy begins the way it does with this address to you. Dearly beloved. Have you ever noticed that? You're seen. You are loved. Peter goes on. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And oh, there it is. Did you hear it? There's a relationship between despair and patience, isn't there? Despair creeps in when we lose our patience with a patient God. Despair comes when you're blinded to the patient work of God. God's work is patient. It's often unseen, often invisible to the naked eye. Let me put it this way. God's work is the opposite of a push notification on your phone. God's work most often doesn't happen instantaneously, just sort of popping in like we would want it to. But everything is so instantaneous these days, isn't it? The instantaneousness of our lives, the push notifications, the distractibility, the frenetic nature of it all. It's driving out hope and driving in despair because it's sucking the patience out of things. And it's ironic because it's precisely the patient work of God that shows that God's not willing that any of you should perish, that any of you should despair, that any of you should be damned to that kind of hopelessness. And what is the patient work of God, according to Peter? The patient work of God is that he's committed to working in you a changed life through the only means possible, repentance. And somehow that changed life is wrapped up in this mega Bible theme that Peter now proclaims, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. If you remember, Cameron talked about it a few weeks ago. It's kind of funny. Repentance may be a patient work of the Lord that takes a lifetime, but as Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Meaning that when Jesus comes back, as God's been patiently working on you, his beloved, it will be like a push notification. Boom, just popping in over whatever app you're currently looking at. Interruptive and unexpected. When Jesus returns, well, listen to this. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works and all that are done in it will be exposed. Now, of course, Peter and we understand that God sees all things and sees all things clearly, but you have to appreciate Peter's metaphor here. When Jesus returns, it's like the screen that separates heaven and earth, the hazy screen that clouds God's visibility of what's really going on down here goes away. The world that thought it could hide from God or act like God doesn't exist or mock the people that do believe he exists and fear him. The world that thought it had the final laugh, especially at Christians who are trying desperately to hang on to hope against despair. Well, God sees it and God will not be mocked. The day of reckoning is coming, Peter says. Peter says, oh, and this is, this is a hopeful word for those of us who are despairing right now. He says, when Jesus returns, all this stuff gets dissolved. He says, listen to this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hang on, Christian. Did you hear that? God has made a promise. God has made a promise that on the other side of the day of the Lord will be a place where righteousness dwells, which means a different destination than your despair says is possible. You see, despair says in hopelessness, things aren't going to get better. 
But let's translate a place where righteousness dwells into plain language. God promises that he will take you to a place where things get better. Don't you recognize how powerful this is for your despair? God has promised that things are going to get better. That the cliff at the end of your hopeless journey isn't the final destination. But what about now? What about right now? What about this hard time right now? Before the day of the Lord. Before that promised day. We need to go back to the word patient. For us, there's a patient life to be lived. And for God, there's a patient work to be done. The patient life to be lived, according to Peter, is actually plain and simple. With that kind of anchored promise grounding us that Jesus will return and that all things are going to get better, we are to, in Peter's words, live lives of holiness and godliness. In a way, if we're really clinging to that promise, Holiness and godliness come rather easy. Holiness just means set apart or different or distinct. And man, if you really buy that God is going to make everything better, wow, set apartness is kind of natural, actually. There's so much joy to contrast the world's joylessness. There's so much kindness to contrast the world's cruelty. There's so much justice-seeking to contrast the world's injustice and godliness too. Living under the promise clarifies what godliness looks like. It looks like adhering now to the ethics and the lifestyle in line with what that future day is going to look like when things are actually better. We live now like that. So holiness and godliness, that's the patient life for us that almost comes out of us, well, like the fruit of the Spirit. When we're simply believing the promises of God, simply living in faith and watching the Spirit push out this kind of conveyor belt of good works. But I want us to land finally, not on our patient life, but on the patient work of God, especially when we read in verse 15 this marvelous, freeing, despair-crushing phrase, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. The patience of the Lord as salvation. He's saying, count the fact that Jesus is delaying his return as a hopeful word for you now, right now, in this patient, delayed time. God is working salvation out. In this despair, in this present struggle, God is not absent. He's present, and he's presently working. Again, the delay is the proof that he's working. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants to repent you into new life. And to give you this final word of hope, I want to show you through Peter the nature of what this patient work will look like. Look at all that crazy apocalyptic imagery here in this passage. Verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In other words, the old heavens and the old earth will pass away and God will bring about something new. Peter's actually using this cosmic, global, and apocalyptic image as a way of telling you what God is currently doing in his patient work of repentance in your life. He's taking the you of right now 
and he's going to end it. You see, there will be a new earth, but the old earth, just like Jesus, must go all the way down to the grave. It must die completely. Just as Jesus didn't swoon on the cross and faint, but died an actual full death, so creation can't escape total death before it is renewed. I know it sounds doom and gloom, and, well, it is. But there's a strange, strange comfort in this word, especially for those of us who are in situations in our life where the sin and the brokenness just can't be transcended and where the despair runs deep. Here's the mind-blowing hope of this devastating passage. God says to all those real problems that have driven you to and kept you in your despair, God says, I'm going to take every last one of them and I'm going to kill them. There will be nothing left of them. They're not going to swoon and reemerge. They're going to be dead, dead, dead. As dead as Jesus was on the cross. So I am now taking every bit of that flesh, that struggle, that bondage, and that temptation, and that corruption, and I'm burying it. In fact, and this is a hard word, but a hopeful word, the mysterious burial in your present affliction is that very work of mine, God says. Burying, laying to rest the old world within you that is passing away. I'm going to take your chronic illness. I'm going to take your mental illness, the chemical imbalances in your brain, and I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to take your dysfunction and your broken family processes. I'm even taking the things that you don't see are wrong with you, the things that you think are okay but aren't, and I will lay them bare, and I will crucify them one day at a time. And I know sometimes it feels like it's never going to happen, really. But God promises that it will. And don't forget, your time is not God's time. And that means that God is saying to you, though it seems like I'm slow, don't take that as that I'm not working, that I'm not there, and that it won't happen. Because I'm not slow in keeping my promise, as some understand slowness. And just because I want all those broken things about you to perish doesn't mean that I want you to perish. Quite the opposite, actually. I want you to live. And in Christ, I will make it so. Because guess what? My patience is your salvation. And I'm not done with you, my beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.